listening to That'll Preach. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about Calvin's book, A Little Book on the Christian Life. This is part of our Reformation series, and we want to take a look at some of the pastoral wisdom that John Calvin gives to us that I think is very relevant for today. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the subject of suffering, which John Calvin covers a lot on in his book. We talk about some of the insights that he has on how we can endure suffering faithfully, what it means to suffer well, and where we ultimately place our hope. So if this is something maybe you're experiencing in your life, I think Calvin might have some insights that would be very helpful for you. And I'm here with my co-host, Paul. We're live in the studio, ready to go. Paul's wearing a cap. He's wearing a baseball hat. Don't I look like the most New Yorker? New you Yorker you look very New York. Thank you. That's and uh, Yeah, so... And he, I, I think that you, you fit you fit the bill, and this is going to be a really good episode because you are dressed, uh, ready to talk, Calvin. Ready to inflict some suffering. <laughs> inflict some suffering. That's what I was trying to say. I'm like, how do I put this? But uh, good. And, and New Yorkers know how to suffer. I mean, I feel like you guys are suffering all the time. You're so rude. You just bump into people. I think you it know, builds. What character. are you talking about? You know what I mean? It's yeah. all that. That's your life. This is the difference between New Yorkers and like West Coasters because it's so perfect on the West Coast. You just, you don't cultivate character. Everything is given to you. It's the weather's always perfect. I don't know. I feel like there's a, there's a fakeness there. And then there's like a, a hardiness that comes with, you're just like, you're in crowded subways all the time. The weather sucks. You just, you're just a normal human people. being. Yeah. Well, they say if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. You I can make it in a garbage dump. You can make it in the <laughs> desert. You can make it in the third world country. I don't know. I think that's probably true. Well, there you go. You, you are a model of resilience. And that's thank you. a lot of what... Calvin talks about. Mm. This is about reformed resilience. And I think sometimes when you think about Calvinism, you think about reformed theology, you think about people with a stiff upper lip, stoic, just kind of unfeeling. That's really not the picture we get from Calvin. I think sometimes you can take some of his sentences and you're like, oh, is this, is this guy just saying grin it and bear it? Mm. But Calvin has a deep human compassion for suffering and he's very reflective about our experience of grief and suffering. And so when it comes out in these words, I think there's a very pastoral bent to it. Yeah. Uh, but some of the stuff, man, when I'm reading this, I was uncomfortable. Because you read it and you're like, that's kind of dark. And then you're like, but it also is very true. Mm. And something that in our modern world, we're not very apt to think about, to reflect on our mortality. When in Calvin's day, you didn't really have a choice your mortality was around you with disease and high infant uh, death rates yeah. and all these types of things. I think Calvin actually lost a child hmm. um, and he experienced the death of his wife. So a lot of difficult things that he experienced. So he's not unfeeling. Yeah. But it's interesting that he's still writing this book, recognizing that people, even in his day, even though they're surrounded by death and graveyards and all these types of things, still can grow complacent when it comes to their mortality. So mm -hmm. people still think they're going to live forever, even in his day. Mm. And so this is, I guess, a perennial affliction for, for human beings. Yeah. And I mean, it raises questions. If you, if you believe that God is good, I mean, it's the classic problem of evil. In one, in one sense, he's addressing the problem of evil from a pastoral perspective. All the suffering, how do you square that with all the, all the goodness of God and God's nature? Uh, it, it's a perennial question, and it's asked afresh by every generation of Christians and Calvin does a little bit, not philosophic, he's not trying to be philosophical here, but he's trying to, like you said, just give people a little bit more of a Christian consolation. How do I understand the suffering that I'm going through? 
And is it is it worth it? Is it doing anything? So you broke this down into four kind of key truths that Calvin brings to the forefront when it comes to how how Christians are to suffer well. What are those four points? Maybe we can use that as the outline. We can kind of sure. go through that. Yeah. So he talks about the, the whole chapter three is about suffering. And he starts out by saying that suffering aids our salvation. I think that's the first big point. And then he says, suffering undermines our self-reliance, our reliance on ourselves. Okay. And then suffering helps us cultivate the emotions that we need to be truly human. And then lastly, patience or uh, suffering helps us become patient. He focuses on patience a lot in this chapter, which I thought was interesting. And he, he talks about Christ as being patient. And for it seems like for Calvin, patience is like a huge virtue, which could be interesting to explore and talk through why, why he might think that is. Um, but yeah, salvation self-reliance, emotions, and patience seem to be the four four things that suffering helps us grow closer towards. Well, his topic or his, his writing on suffering follows, I think, pretty seamlessly from his chapter on self-denial. In fact, yeah. in our last episode on Calvin's book, uh, we talked about his theology of self-denial. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that chapter, in chapter 2... He starts talking about how one aspect of self-denial is basically suffering well. The suffering yeah. well is a, a, a subset of self-denial. Mm. And that goes into his third chapter, which we'll spend most of our time in. But I want to look just very briefly at the end of the, the second chapter, uh, where he, he talks about the fragility of life. And I think this is a very, very haunting passage that That's a good word uh, for it. he writes. Yeah. He essentially speaks about how... Uh, the pious should stand firm in peace and patience in all circumstances. And he goes on and says, The person thus composed in soul will neither judge himself to be miserable, nor will he spitefully complain against God for his lot in life, come what may. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting because in like Psalm 88 or in other Psalms or in Job, mm-hmm. it does seem like they express their misery to God. Yeah, Maybe he doesn't think that that's what he's talking about. Maybe he's talking about kind of an impious Or he thinks complaints. that's a flaw. Perhaps, maybe, yeah. maybe. maybe. I, I don't know if I'm there with him. I, I think you yeah. can be uh, piously voicing your complaints. I think it depends on your heart behind it. But mm. regardless, I think the main point is true. And then he says this, the true necessity of having such a disposition is clear if you consider how many unforeseen events we are exposed to in this life. We are continually harassed by one illness or another. The plague advances. We are cruelly vexed by the calamities of war. Frost and hail render the land barren and leaves us with little, devouring our expectation for the year's crop. Wife, parents, children, and close relatives are snatched away by death. Homes are consumed by fire. These are events which make men curse their lives, despise the day where they were born, hold in contempt heaven and its light, rage against God, and being fluent in blasphemies, accuse God of unfairness and cruelty. And here's the key phrase. But the believer must in these same circumstances consider the mercy and the fatherly kindness of God. Hmm. So he's talking about how every human being common to the human experience is the fragility of life. Yeah. Sickness, death, bereavement, war, not getting crops, starvation, all these types of things. These are things that all human beings, or at least the, the, the experience of suffering is universal, mm-hmm. even though it may be to different degrees. But he says, even though we might all experience suffering in some form or fashion, the perspective of the Christian is what sets him or her apart. Mm-hmm. That whereas a pagan may 
clench his fist at God, the Christian understands that there is a kindness even in suffering. Yeah. Now, I don't think he's saying call evil good or right. good evil. Right. But he is saying that there is a, a, a cosmic goodness, right, in, in which God is superintending all things for our good. And we don't have to know exactly how it's working out mm. to be able to draw upon a, a reservoir of comfort in the midst of these afflictions. Mm. One question I had, though, was how does this square with a lot of the covenant blessings you see in the Old Testament? Are those just abrogated? Are those gone? Because you read the Old Covenant, it's like, oh, man, if we obey, God's going to bless all our crops and all these types of things. Yeah. And uh, it seems overly pessimistic about even the fortunes of Christians in this life. I don't think that anyone—I'm not prosperity gospel, but I did wonder, like, Calvin, like, is it really the Christian's— um, that that there's no, that, I don't know, that how, how does a, a theology of provision come in here? Maybe that is the provision. I'm sort of thinking out loud right now because it seems yeah. overly pessimistic. I'm pessimistic or or realistic. I think he's looking at, he's looking at faithful people in his congregation. And I mean, maybe he's looking at himself and he knows God is good, but he also knows that he's experiencing affliction. Right. And how do you bring those two things together? Either you say, well, God is not good. Or you say, God doesn't have the power to stop this. Or you say, God is punishing me. But Calvin doesn't want to go any of those routes. It always goes back to the problem of evil. It does. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is like, it, it, is, it is really a perennial human question. And Calvin's solution is, is not to give a solution, but just to say, thinking about God in the midst of evil and suffering reconceptualizes how we think about that suffering. That we don't have to say we know the point, but that there is a point that there is some sort of narrative, that there's some sort of purpose. And the, the evil and the suffering that the Christian experiences is not gratuitous, is not without an end in mind. And that, for Calvin, changes everything. I'm going to uh, answer my own question now, because what you it. said there with the end in mind, Calvin later says, he says that uh, if the believer should see his crop consumed by drought, disease, or frost, or trampled down by hail and famine threaten him, even then he must not despair within his soul, nor should he become angry toward God. Rather, he must persist with confidence in this truth. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 79, 13. Mm -hmm. God then will provide for us, however barren the land. If the believer should be afflicted by illness, he must not be so stung by the severity of his hardship that he erupts in impatience and demands from God an explanation. Rather, he must, considering the justice and gentleness of God's discipline, recall himself to patience. So he does say, actually, it's not just stoicism where you're just stiff upper lip. Yeah. You're going, I'm just going to barrel through. He's saying, no, I guess this is the virtue of patience. He's saying, it's not yet over. Mm -hmm. Yes, you may not have gotten the crop. Yes, your land may be barren, but God will take care of you. Yeah, He will take care of you. And I think taking care of you is different than giving you everything that you want right. or sparing you from affliction. Right. But rather, he is going to care for you in some way. So I think that is the good thing where it's like if you're running low on money, yeah. it's like you may not get all the money you want, but God will give you what you need. I think believers can trust God for that. Yeah. You know, and I think even now today when people stress about money, um, we are the wealthiest people that have ever lived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we're in the top 1% of, yeah. of, of humanity. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm not downplaying financial hardships that we all face and we all experience, it is worth 
reflecting on how much of that anxiety comes from an unrealistic expectation of our standard of living mm-hmm. and unreal. How much of it is it, is it coming from comparison right. of what's being marketed to us? Yeah. And I think what Calvin is getting at is when you sort of, you have to cleanse your palate and say, okay, everything is a gift from God. My life, my breath is not owed to me. Nothing is owed to me. Mm-hmm. If I cleanse my palate that way, mm-hmm. then I'm one, I'm going to notice all the mercies God just unloads on me every single day of my life. Yeah. And when affliction comes, I know there's a good purpose behind it and I don't have to figure it out because I don't expect this life to be perfect. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's a really helpful thing where he ties it in ultimately to Christ. And that's when he starts in chapter three, when he says, look, and this is what I love. He's not just giving moral advice. He's saying part of your salvation Part of what it means to follow Christ is to follow him in his death and resurrection, Mm -hmm. is to pick up your cross and follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. And I love this where he says, look, here's how you know that your suffering is not necessarily a sign of condemnation from God. Sometimes it can be. God does judge the wicked. Mm -hmm. But for those who are in Christ, if you believe in Christ, here's how you should view your suffering through the lens of Christ. Did Christ suffer affliction, loneliness, betrayal, hardship, death? Yes. Was he perfectly loved by God? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Is he God himself? Yes. Yeah. Right? And if that's true, then that's the truest thing about your suffering as well. Mm-hmm. That actually he talks about how your suffering, rather than showing your abandonment or your perceived abandonment, it's actually the very partaking. It's, it's actually communion with God. Yeah. You're sharing in Christ's suffering. You're partaking in it. That your sufferings are a part, an integral part of your Christian life, not a disruption of an otherwise sound, close, great Christian life. Mm. That the, uh, C.S. Lewis, I forget where he wrote this, but this is a paraphrase, but he says that the trick is um, not to assume that the interruptions in your life are, are interruptions, mm-hmm. that the hardships are interruptions in your life, right? It's actually the life that God is giving you day by day. And what he's trying to say is that the hardship, things that you feel like, man, I just wish my life could just go the way that I want, or you feel like there's like stoppage that like God stopped working your life because mm-hmm. there's difficulties. He goes, no, actually the difficulties are actually part of the story. That is the story. That is what's on stage right now. Yeah. The actual suffering you're going through is part of the plan. It's not waiting for the plan to happen. It's actually part of it, part mm-hmm. of how God is molding us and making us fit for salvation, which we can qualify that. I yeah. don't know if you wanted to, to well, j- dive in on that one. I mean, that, as you were talking, it sounded like this is this is the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel. Yeah. So the prosperity gospel says prosperity is a sign of God's blessing, that you are doing well, that you are sharing in Christ's fellowship. Calvin's saying here, actually, and I'm going to quote him directly, how powerfully should it soften the bitterness of the cross? We're talking about our own personal crosses. To think that the more we are afflicted with adversity the more sure we are made of our fellowship with Christ by communion with whom our sufferings are not only blessed to us, but tend greatly to the furthering of our salvation. So suffering assures us of our communion with Christ. And actually he says aids our salvation because he's quoting acts here through much, through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom of God um, and to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. I mean, that's, it sounds He's definitely not going like a purgatory route here. Right. But he is, he's affirming a biblical principle that suffering makes us into the character of Christ. And that there's, there's no more, um, there's no activity more 
conducive to our salvation than suffering well, because it's through suffering that Christ learned obedience to God. This is what Hebrews says. And so if God doesn't spare his own son from suffering, then why should we think that we should be exempt from that if we're also called to be like him? And if our ultimate end and goal is to be made like Christ, then why not think that also includes partaking in Christ's death as well? It's a different kind of prosperity gospel. Yeah. Because the yeah. true prosperity is yeah. communion with God. Right. And you know that because the ultimate end of the Christian life, what the new heavens and new earth will be characterized by, is perfect union with God. That God actually made us so that our greatest prosperity would be fellowship with him. And so it's actually the prosperity gospel, as we understand it today, with yeah. health, wealth, and money, is actually a, a deficient prosperity. Right. It's aiming too low. Right. And in the crucible of suffering, you actually, what crystallizes is the, the great prosperity you have in your fellowship with Christ. Not saying that you're going to be happy and joyful. In fact, I think Calvin would readily say you're going to be weeping and crying because Jesus himself did that. He experienced real grief. He wasn't yeah. walking around just with a big smile on his face saying everything's going to work out. It's going to be fine. But he endured sorrows. He was a man acquainted with sorrows, but there's something comforting there. And I think with the salvation respect, we have to understand that when he's talking about salvation, as Protestants, we're thinking about justification. Like right. suffering is part of, is not part of, suffering is not what earns your justification, meaning being declared righteous before God, mm -hmm. right? That's by faith in Christ. And but what Calvin is talking about is salvation is a broader category than mere forgiveness of sins right. or being called righteous. When he's talking about salvation, and this is really how the Bible often talks about salvation, it's talking about the full liberation mm -hmm. of humanity from the curse of sin and death. Right? Which it's includes sanctification. Which includes sanctification. Yeah. It's talking about the Romans 8, all of creation released from its bondage to death and decay, and mm -hmm. the re revelation of the sons of God in, their, in all their glory. Right, And so in salvation, the broad sense, what he's saying is that suffering is part of not how we earn our righteous status before God, yeah. but rather in the, if the end goal of the Christian life is to be liberated from sin and death, suffering plays a critical role in that. Um, and so that as we suffer, we're becoming more like Christ. Well, who is Christ? He's the perfect man. He is right. the man who is liberated from sin and death. He's the one who liberates others from sin and death. Yeah. He's the one who defeated the grave. And if we want to be like Christ, what we're really saying is we want to be the prosperous, joyful human beings that we are created to be. And the primary thing is we need to be uh, uh, transformed and saved from the, the, the condemnation and burden of sin and the mastery of sin. And we need to become like Christ in his glory. And so that's a long-winded way of saying what Calvin is saying in, with regard to suffering leading to our salvation is not suffering earns salvation yeah but rather suffering is the means through which we become the very thing that god promises to make us which yeah. is human beings restored in his image free from sin and death and suffering plays a role in that maybe maybe another way to put that is if the ultimate goal is for us to become fully human then what that takes is becoming fully sanctified fully virtuous right and the way to get fully virtuous is to suffer you right. cannot become it's virtuous, sanctified, right. without undergoing tribulations. It is it is a necessary ingredient for fallen people like us. And so if, if the formula is we're going to, like our, our ultimate end and goal is to become perfect humans, fully human, fully right. alive, then to do that, we need to become fully virtuous. And so on the path to becoming fully virtuous or sanctified is suffering. And so I, that, that's that's... He's not talking about earning salvation, like you said, in the justification sense, but it's contributing towards our 
the the process of growing and becoming fully alive as right, humans. Right. So there's a very narrow understanding of salvation, which can be yeah. synonymous with justification. Then there's a broader right. uh, vision of salvation, which includes justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification yeah, of the final right. state. Um, and it is interesting that Jesus himself, I think Hebrews, oh gosh, Hebrews 10, I don't remember where it is, but Somewhere it says that, yeah, Jesus learned obedience to what he suffered. Yeah. And it's not, so that shows us that there's a category in which suffering can train us without us having sinned. Mm-hmm. That's that's key because Jesus never sinned. And yet how was he trained in obedience? Well, he was a human. He learned, he grew, he grew into the fullness and stature of, as a man. And, 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 and he grew as uh, through his suffering, God was was perfecting his character. And I, I mean that in a qualified sense of that uh, it wasn't that he was correcting his characters if there was a deficiency in him. But because he was a man, he was growing perfectly in virtue. He was responding perfectly to his trials and sufferings. And so there's the model for us. And if Jesus suffered and it wasn't a punishment for his sin, because mm-hmm. he's sinful, because, because he's not sinful. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like everything you is short circuits. First, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, then, they, then, then there's a category there for us now. Yeah, in the epistles, they do talk about how there are times when we do sin, and you know, Paul talks in Ephesians. He's like, look, if, if or, or rather, uh, Peter talks about it in, in First Peter, where it's like, look, if you, you know, are causing an insurrection or you commit a crime and you put in jail for it, that doesn't count as God's, you know. That does, you, you can't chalk that up to righteous right, right, suffering. Right. You know, you did something wrong, you pay the consequences. Or even eating the Lord's Supper without uh, right, recognizing right, it and right. drinking judgment on yourself. Right. There's an aspect of God's judgment in, in right. suffering. Now, yeah. they're also disciplinary in a, in a sense. Sure, yeah. But the main thing Calvin's talking about is for faithful Christians, not perfect Christians, but faithful Christians, yeah. there's a distinction in there. Um, we don't have to condemn ourselves when we go through sufferings, but rather we can see that, okay, God is actually doing something in this. I think somebody once said, um, you know, God, don't forget who, God didn't cause the affliction, but he sent it or something like that, which maybe as a philosopher, you're like, that's not a distinction at all. But there's a sense in which trying to get at the God does have absolute sovereignty over all things. Mm -hmm. uh, And yet we don't have to attribute to him causation with regard to evil well yeah because god god doesn't ever do evil he only does good right right and that gets into gosh we got we need to do that problem of evil episode get well, guillaume back on here let's do set it. everyone straight guillaume if you hear us we miss you we do we want you back it's a good time what was the second point you had suffering undermines self-reliance Ooh. yeah i'm gonna read just read a couple do sentences it. here kevin says it is of no little importance to be rid of your own self-love and made fully conscious of your weakness. So impressed with a sense of your weakness as to learn to distrust yourself, to distrust yourself so as to transfer your confidence to God, reclining on him with such heartfelt confidence as to trust in his aid and continue invincible to the end, standing by his grace so as to perceive that he is true to his promises and so assured of the certainty certainty of his promises as to be strong in hope. So suffering, it does a lot of things here rids us of self-love. It makes us conscious of our weaknesses. And as a result of that, we distrust ourselves and move our confidence from our own abilities onto God and to to say his promises again and again over to ourselves and cultivate a sense of certainty about God's promises and cultivate the virtue of hope. So suffering moves the eye of our attention off of ourselves 
and onto God. This is like the C.S. Lewis line where he says, suffering is God's megaphone. This is God speaking to us. God is removing the attention from ourselves onto himself. And, and this is important because not everybody can do this. This takes a certain kind of character because you can imagine someone who's suffering and all they think about is their own suffering. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that can be an, that can be a first step. But Calvin thinks that for the Christian, the ultimate goal of that is that we distrust our own abilities, that we see that we are just totally vulnerable and incapable of dealing with the situation at hand. There's, there's a kind of fragility and frailty that you pointed out. The crops you have no control over, disease you have no control over. So it should remind us, I mean, we saw this in the pandemic, just how, how utterly vulnerable we are and reliant we are on the world and these forces of nature that we just, we can't do anything about. And that, that's kind of scary. But Calvin says that's a good thing because we were never meant to be totally self-reliant. Um, I mean, it, it, this, this is pretty harrowing when you think about it because we all as humans have a tendency to, to want to think of ourselves as self-sufficient. And I think even as Americans, that's even more of a salient point. Individualism, try to be sustainable, try to be self-sustaining. And the message of Christianity is not just that that's bad, but that that's impossible that our ultimate end is total and utter dependence on God. And that's the condition in which we most flourish and thrive in. And suffering helps us achieve that condition. We talk about how the holiest people are the ones who recognize that they depend on the strength of God. Yeah. And we often think about holy people as people who they, you know, they're like the David Goggins. Do you know who David Goggins is? No. He's like a, He's like a former SEAL. He's online and he like runs like triathlons of course and you know races and he's just like hardcore you know he's not one of those toxic masculinity guys is he uh, depends Mo on who you ask toxic masculinity yeah right right <laughs> but uh you know i mean his whole thing is like you've got the strength within you and and, and i think there's there's some validity in that I think sure if you he's know, talking about self-discipline sure yeah but there are things where you just can't prepare yourself for it yeah and I think that vision of holiness is these aren't the Navy SEALs of Christianity, holy, holy people. These are actually people who have recognized that the only power they have comes from God. Mm. And sometimes we over-spiritualize that. But I think part of it is, and John Piper wrote a book called Future Grace that was really mm -hmm. helpful in this, where he's like, you don't have to worry about you know, a trial 10, year down, 10 years down the line, how you're going to respond. Right. Now, there are things you can do. You build some endurance towards that but he's basically saying that the grace will be there when you need it that trusting god with our future is also saying like look i trust that he will keep me mm -hmm. in fact i think piper once said in one of his sermons one of the prayers he prays the most is keep me lord mm. and i don't think that's a, a, a cry of desperation i think it's a sense of god i trust you that i don't have to be the strongest person in the world i don't have to have it all figured out mm. I can trust that you will give me the strength when I need it, as I need it. And to me, that is very, that's very helpful to think through because a lot of our anxieties are ruminating on, on the future, what it could be. Mm -hmm. And underneath that is thinking, I can't control that. And not only can I not control what happens in the future, I, I don't know that I can control how I'm going to react in the future. And the thing that he says is if you depend upon God, Right. If you trust that God will help me, then you can bravely face the future mm -hmm. with that assurance. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the simple thing where you're just like, look, I know that I, 
you know, I'm, I know that I'm weak. I don't know that I can handle my kids. I don't know that I can work through this difficult thing in my marriage. I don't know that, you know, work difficulties, I, I'm, I'm at my wits end. But if I trust that God has his strength on my, on my behalf, he's going to work on my behalf, then I can endure. Yeah. Or I could make the changes that I need, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I, I could actually have some kind of confidence that I could take a risk. You yeah. know, it's not even just, it's not just enduring, enduring, enduring. Sometimes it's the confidence to act knowing that God is going to take care of you. So yeah. I think that just having a, a deeper sense that God is with us, really with us, mm-hmm. really with us and cares about our life and will act on our behalf is what Calvin is angling at more so than just sort of stiff upper lip, just yeah. take what comes at you. Since we quoted Piper twice already, I'll make it third one, third time's a charm. Um, in his commentary on the we're more than conquerors passage, Piper points out that it, what, what does a conqueror do when he conquers another land? He goes and he makes it his own. But what, is it, what does it mean to be more than just a conqueror? Well, Piper says that what God is doing in our trials and tribulations and sufferings is enlisting the things that were designed to destroy us to actually serve our benefit. So we become colonists. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Is Piper, John Piper, Piper the colonialist? Colonial, yeah, colonialist. That's that's the word. Yeah. Piper the colonist. Piper the pilgrim. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> I'm a- I'm triggered. I'm offended. You are. Yeah. No, that's a good that's a good way to put it. And yeah. Calvin talks about how suffering strips us of self-love, which is really interesting. Mm. And I, you do notice that, though. People go through suffering, and afterwards, they're just more real. Like, a lot of the pretension is stripped away, especially mm. when they go through some really hard stuff. And I, I've noticed this with friends of mine and just conversations. I'm like, wow, you know, like, you think that you're revealing how terrible of a Christian you are, and I'm seeing the revelation of your humanity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in fact... I think you're revealing actually the true Christian mm-hmm. that you really are. And the mm-hmm. other stuff was just this facade, yeah. you know? And I think that there's something about that. That's what's so great about being in a local church. And there's people who are older than you who've suffered more than you. And you, they kind of give you that look where they're like, oh, you know, you'll you'll understand. Yeah. You know, like that's not really what's important. Yeah. You I know? mean, it, the people who've suffered, you can tell when someone hasn't suffered because they feel less human. And yeah. like you said, people who have suffered feel more real and by more real, we mean more human. That, that's exactly Calvin's third point, that suffering helps us cultivate the emotions yeah. that are requisite for humanity. Yeah. So uh, contrary to like the, the misconception that Calvinism is endorsing stoicism, Calvin actually says that to bear the cross patiently is not to have your feelings blunted, to be absolutely insensible to pain, according to the absurd description of the Stoics, right? Someone who's divested of humanity but rather, uh, the, the virtuous person or the person who's suffering exhibits a shadow of patience who um, uh, grows from human life. Now, we among Christians have a new kind of stoic who hold it vicious to groan, to weep, to be sad, to be anxious. But these paradoxes are usually started by indolent men who, employing themselves more in speculation than action, can do nothing else for us than beget such paradoxes. But we have nothing to do with that iron philosophy, which our Lord and Master condemned, not only in word, but also by his own example, for he both grieved and shed tears for his own and others' woes. So he calls it an iron philosophy, this Stoicism, and it's an unchristian one, 
one that says you should get rid of your emotions, one that says you should never feel pain, you should just grit your teeth and go through the suffering in a sort of unaffected way. The Stoics just real quick had this weird belief that you should never be affected by anything. That if your wife dies and you are moved to tears, that that is vicious because you're acknowledging that something outside of you has caused in you this response. And so to be a full human, you have to be totally cut off. You have to be impassable. You have to be self-sufficient. It's strangely close to this like uh, individualist attitude. And Calvin says that's not Christian because look at the fullest human we've ever seen, Christ. He grieves, he weeps, he expresses the whole suite of human emotions in the right way to the right degree and towards the right objects. But suffering helps us cultivate the emotions that are needed to become human. So it's just another way that it adds to or helps us become more fully human, which is why we see in people who've suffered a kind of realness, a kind of authenticity. And you can tell when someone hasn't suffered, there's an immaturity there. There's a lack of, I don't know, they're just, they're just not real. It's almost like you're talking to a kind of like a, a shell of a person. You tell them you still have a long ways to go. There's still a long ways yeah. to develop there, right? That's the language we use to describe someone who hasn't, who hasn't gone through something difficult. I'm thinking about my interview with Ansi Camel that just came out where, you know, subtle plug for that. Go, go check that episode out. But he talks about romanticism and how, you know, when he was a single guy, he's like, I'm going to get married and have my kids and be an icon of God's glory and da, 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 have a family, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. And then he actually got married and had kids. He's like, oh, this is hard. You know, I mean, it's wonderful, but it's hard. And I do think there is, there's just an idealism that can actually stunt our growth. And that when that's shattered, we can actually begin to start growing. Hmm. You know, we can actually begin to start really engaging honestly with God at a deep level. If you guys are interested on more discussion about emotions and a reformed and uh, even a, a medieval kind of vision of, of emotions, and then how we can incorporate some of those insights. Uh, and even places where maybe Calvin got things a little wrong, check out my interview with Matt Lapine. You can find it in our archives. You can go on our website and you can find it. He talks about a theology of emotions, which I think was a really fascinating um, conversation. But just to go back to Calvin, he says that the gladness that is required from us in the midst of persecution doesn't destroy every feeling of anguish and sorrow. And he goes on to say that basically poverty, illness, disgrace, all these things, the reason that we have to endure them is because they feel bad, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? Like, right. like it, it wouldn't be endurance if they just, if you were just happy all if the time. If you were stoic, yeah. So or, or unaffected. part of what being faithful and enduring is, and he says, but in the midst of them, the courage of the believer makes itself known, hmm. right? And then later on, he says, the Stoics paint a portrait of endurance that has never been found, nor can exist among men. Indeed, while they wished to represent endurance accurately and precisely, they deprived humankind of the power of genuine endurance. Hmm. In other words, if you just are a Stoic and just not feeling sorrow after bereavement or death or grief or whatever, anything like that, if you suppress all those emotions, you're actually not genuinely enduring. Hmm. Because genuine endurance is to actually walk through the valley of the shadow of death in all of its grief and its terror and its pain. Hmm. It's to walk with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. Jesus is the perfectly virtuous man hmm. and he cries all night, hmm. right? And, and he wants, he even he wants his disciples to stay up and pray that he might endure. You look at it and you're like, for someone who has God in the flesh, Jesus because he's also truly man, he shows what true dependence upon God is. Hmm. He shows what true piety and devotion, what a wholly devoted 
uh, human being looks like mm-hmm. to God. Now he is God himself. There's incarnations of there, but there's yeah. there's Christ as the example. He's saying, look, the perfect man weeps mm. in sorrow. He look, even even when he weeps over Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, mm-hmm. I gather you like a mother hen. All that stuff. I mean, he's grieved over people's sin. He's moved by compassion, and uh, that is a very radically different vision than than the Stoic vision, which mm-hmm. I think is really important. So again, Calvin is not heartless. Yeah. Far you know? from it. Yeah. He is saying actually part of endurance is, man, you got to feel the feels in a sense. Now, today it's overboard, right? We're all up in our feels. Um, but notice the things that Calvin's talking about. He's like, look, yeah, poverty, you, you should be really sad if you're in poverty, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, if you're disgraced, that should sting, Yeah, right? But if you just have first world problems, maybe you need to toughen up a little bit, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's not an endorsement of feelings across the spectrum. Right. Like Calvin's not just saying your feelings are always legitimate and you should follow them and trust them and they're reliable. He's saying that uh, there is an appropriate response to tragic situations. And those require feeling certain things. That a, a virtuous person will feel disgust and sadness and joy and will mourn and will grieve. And these are, if, if, if you don't have those responses to good and bad things, then you're not a good human. But part of what being a good human is, is to take pleasure in the right things and to be saddened by right. or outraged at the wrong, like as in the evil in the world. What sin is, is sin flips those two things. We take joy in evil and we are pained at the good things. And, and virtue helps us switch those two things that we're, we take pain and pleasure in the right objects. Right. And so that's what sanctification is ultimately, that we enjoy the good and we don't do it. It's not painful for us. And that we are repulsed at evil and not secretly enjoying indulging in it. You know, this makes me think about people who they're not really affected by hard things. They're just like, yeah, it doesn't really bother me. But you also notice that they don't really celebrate great things. Hmm. And I think there's some virtue to that temperance where you're not super high, super low. But I wonder though, if there's a correlation where because you don't allow yourself to feel deeply, properly Mm -hmm. feel deeply about grievous things, you can't properly rejoice or enjoy in, yeah. in good things. Yeah. So it would be like saying, you know, you you, you may not a funeral a funeral may not affect you, and it should more. Mm-hmm. But also, a wedding doesn't really give you that as much joy as yeah. it should. And that's different than saying, you know, being an even keeled person, which I think yeah. is part of being sober minded. But that is something. I remember somebody telling me cynicism is a failure to cope. That cynicism is a failure to cope with reality. And I think it's it's blocking mm. yourself from feeling the force of like, no, this is hard. Cynicism yeah. allows a distance, yeah. you know, putting everything at arm's length. And also, but the 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 downside of it is you can be cynical and that can blunt being affected or being disappointed by the world, mm-hmm. but it also blunts your ability to appreciate and enjoy the good in the world. Which means you have a less human experience. Right, of the a less world. human experience. Right. Yeah. So I'm not saying we should be volatile, right. swing from good and bad, but rather like you're saying. There is an appropriate affection. There's mm-hmm. an appropriate emotional response yeah, yeah. to things. And that Jesus shows us not a lack of emotion, but appropriate mastered emotions that yeah. are appropriate to their context, mm. right? Lazarus dying, appropriately weeping, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, him, uh, the, the joy set before him, the, the glory of the resurrection, the glory of the of the beauty of the church that he sees, an appropriate rejoicing that yeah. he has. Yeah. So that's what we're arguing for. 
not the suppression of emotions, not the uh, the total expression of all emotions, but the proper channeling of them, the appropriate uh, manifestation of, of emotions based upon the context. Mm. Yeah. Right? That truly good things should draw out great joy in mm. us. Right? And truly evil things should draw out anger and grief. Yeah. Right? We even think about righteous anger mm-hmm. is an appropriate emotion to feel when there is injustice, Absolutely. there's evil, there is deception. And that, that I think is great. I, that, that, that's actually helping me consider, because I, I think in my life, cynicism is my way to cope a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us, maybe guys especially, we're afraid of feeling the difficulties that we really face. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying being a, a, a spineless mess of, a, you know, in a puddle of your own tears. Right. I'm saying that our moral intuitions and our moral character have to be shaped in such a way that we appropriately respond with appropriate emotions in the right way, which we will never get. But that's, there's, well, a, dis- there's, a, there's uh, a discipling of the emotions that I think glor- is really good. Absolutely. Lewis talks about this as, even when he talks about education, education, when you teach your child, ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach them to take pleasure in the right things and to be pained at the wrong things. So what if we just changed our conception of virtue as being able to enjoy good and being appropriately repulsed by evil? That totally changed. It's not about just actions. It's about what your heart is disposed to and uh, is repulsed by. And if you have your affections trained in all the right ways, then you've made it. That, that's what it is to be a glorified human. That's what we can expect in the eschaton. But that's what we should be striving towards as an aspiration now. Calvin writes, if then we want to be disciples of Christ, we should make it our aim to soak our minds in the sort of sensitivity and obedience to God that can tame and subdue every natural impulse mm. contrary to his command. Mm. So it will be that no matter what kind of cross is placed upon us, we will steadily maintain endurance, even through the narrowest straits of the soul. Indeed, adverse circumstances will keep their bitterness and we will feel their bite. When afflicted by illness, we will groan and toss and long for health. When pursued by poverty, we will feel the stings of sadness and anxiety. We will bear the weight of sorrow, dishonor, contempt, and injustice. When loved ones die, we will naturally weep. But this will always be our conclusion. Nevertheless, the Lord has willed it. Therefore, let us follow his will. Hmm. That's hard. Yeah. But notice what he's saying. He's saying it should hurt. Yeah. But you can say, nevertheless, in the midst of the pain... I can know that there's a good purpose, even if I can't see it. And I don't have to see it because mm-hmm. I'm just a creature. So there's a humility there. And this is part of what suffering does. It strips us away from our presumptions about that we, that we know what God's doing. Yeah. And there is a mystery to suffering. Yeah. Right? It doesn't mean that there isn't a reason. It's just, it's just mysterious right. to us. And somehow what we need more than even an answer is that sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And to me, I don't do well in suffering. I don't like thinking about it. So it was hard reading this, but I know that this is true. Mm. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't. I don't read this and go, "Yeah, awesome." I go, "Dang, that's." Yeah. I don't know that I. I think that's the appropriate response. Y- yeah, yeah. Someone who's too excited about this, there's right. there's something that went wrong in in their right. cult, in their affections, right? And to bring this all full circle, bring us full circle. Calvin's last point is suffering helps cultivate patience. And yeah. why that's important is because he, he contrasts secular versus Christian patience. And patience is the ability to endure an evil for the sake of a good that's coming later. Yeah. So this is how Christianity changes everything. 
It changes the experience of suffering because you see the suffering as an evil, a temporary evil that you are enduring for the sake of something good on the end of it. Which notice how if you're an atheist, you don't have that same way of conceptualizing the suffering. Paul says that the suffering that we're undergoing now is a drop in the ocean of the glories that we're going to enjoy later, right? And so trials and tribulations, to be patient with them is to endure them for the sake of a good. But if you don't have that good on the other end, it's not patience anymore. You can ask yourself, and it's a genuine question, why should I endure this evil? Why should I not cheat? Why should I not cut corners? Why should I not be infidelitous in my marriage? Why should I not? Like, what's what's the good on the other side that's going to redeem the entire narrative? What's what's the ultimate goal? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? And, and it, Calvin here, I mean, this is this incredibly philosophically profound that if you have a Christian view of the world where God is in control, you have sovereignty, and then you have our ultimate end as human beings to be united with God as full humans, then it changes how we think about this middle period of suffering, that there's an order to it from the start and there's an end to it. It's not infinite. That's another thing. There's an end in mind and the end is a goal, a specific good that we're going to achieve. I mean, it really does change how you how you think about what you're going through. It, it really is a different kind of patience. It's a patience that's endured for a good on the other end, that if you don't have a Christian account of reality, you're going to struggle to make sense of how this is even patience. Why should I even exercise this virtue in the midst of my suffering? Well, he talks about how God works for our salvation by the very cross with which he afflicts us. Mm. And then he says, however much our spirits might shrink behind, uh, beneath the cross, naturally adverse to its bitterness, they will expand in equal measure with spiritual joy. And this will give rise to thanksgiving, which cannot exist without joy. Thanksgiving and praise of our Lord can only spring from a glad and joyful heart. If there's nothing that can stop such thanksgiving and praise in us, then it's clear that the bitterness of the cross must be tempered with spiritual joy. Hmm. And he's saying a cross, it's a cross for a reason. Yeah. It hurts. Right. We're not supposed to be, you know, masochists enjoying that pain. But he says that there's a perspective shift. And he says that it will expand in equal measure with spiritual joy. That's a really good line. Hmm. That... God is going to ensure that our sufferings will produce eventually, if we are patient, a deep and abiding joy, thanksgiving, and praise. Hmm. And so, we often think about our joy is temple. Our joy is tempered by the bitterness of afflictions. But he actually flips it and he says, "Our afflictions, the bitterness, will be tempered by the great joy hmm. that God promises." Yeah. And eschatology is so important. I mean. I, Something about the end times. We think about, you know, oh, the rapture and Russia's helicopters and all stuff. <laughs> but the main focus of eschatology, especially in the New Testament, is the great hope uh, of our liberation from the bondage to sin and death. Hmm. And that one day all that is evil will be put to right. You know, that that is essential to the Christian hope, the return of Christ, the renewal of all things that one day we will receive the abounding joy uh, that will swallow up all the grief of, of death and sorrow forever. Mm. But that's a future hope. Right. And so we're always going to be waiting for that. So it's not like, you know, I mean, I think God does give us that in this life, you know, that you suffer, but then you see the fruit of it. You look back, you're like, oh, wow. But eventually 
you will you will never see the fullness of the joy at the end of your suffering until that final day. Mm-hmm. That's hard to yeah. think about, but maybe that's revealing again what Calvin says. It's revealing my attachment to the world. Mm. And when he says attachment to the world, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't enjoy creation. I mean, creation is good. He talks about that. Yeah. But that the best thing that we can do, considering the fragility of life, is to not set our hope upon this earthly life. Mm. And the sense of really reflecting on our mortality, really reflecting on, you know, is this argument with my spouse worth having Mm. if I know one day we're going to bury each other? Mm. You know, is my career that important when I know that I'm going to be missing this time with my children? Right. You know, um, what, what really matters coming to church, worshiping God, maybe that is the most important thing I can do instead of just even doing a fun thing or going on a trip on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. If I'm thinking about preparing myself for eternity, it does, completely shift our mindset absolutely and perhaps to the degree that we're willing to engage that is to the degree that we will actually find joy and satisfaction in the christian life hmm. that's great there you That'll go preach. there you go make sure you guys pick up a copy a little book on the christian life it's like 10 bucks on amazon it's got a great translation by ligonier ministries but also paul we can link found to the free a, PDF, yeah, yeah. there's a free pdf mm-hmm. you can check out as well but uh hope you guys appreciated uh, this show and and we you know we were appreciative that you guys are listening in. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. That'll preach podcast. Go to our website that'll preach io. And uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna catch you guys next week uh, for more Reformation goodness. <laughs> <laughs>